It was one of those nights, as dark as tar, as black as caviar. Every leaf of every tree hung still as the wind held its breath. The street light flickered and strobed the house in a sporadic orange glow. And there, two headlights of an oncoming car panned across a row of houses, lawns, and mailboxes as the vehicle turned right and slowly hummed its way down the street. At the cul-de-sac, there was a momentary flash of red brake lights, and then everything went black. The humming ceased, and everything fell silent. In the pitch blackness, the figure behind the wheel was obscured from view. But you could hear the soft click of the driver's side door close shut. And in the flickering street light, intermittently you could see this image of a man illuminated here, there, now there. He silently slithered his way along the stucco wall of the house all the way to the side door. And when he arrived there, he took a momentary pause and he looked around. He scanned his surroundings. His hands emerged from his pockets, gloved. And after one more glance around, he quickly stabbed two thin metallic tools into the lock. And a mere 30 seconds later, there was another soft click ringing in the still night air. His gloved hand encircled the knob, and with one twist, the door was open. With one footstep inside, he was breaking and entering. Now, the neighbors, they must have wondered why that house, of all the tidy upscale homes on the block, why the fixer-upper? It's defiled. It's trashed. It's a dump. The pipes are all leaky. The floorboards creak. They're all rotten. There's mold and mildew everywhere. God knows what else. The renters, they're rumored to be hoarders, and their consumption has altogether consumed them. There's nothing of value in this house. It's not worth breaking and entering. But what if I told you that this was no stranger's house? What if I told you that this stranger breaking and entering was no stranger at all, but that this stranger breaking and entering, that it's his name on the deed, that it's his name on the paychecks paying the mortgage, that it's his hands that built this house from the ground up. And he has come 
to clean house, to set things straight. That's the story of Advent. Sure, Advent is the story of the most wonderful time of the year where we deck the halls with boughs of holly. We fall la 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 la. We melancholy maca because it's the wise way to wrap our minds around the strange story of a weird old bearded man breaking and entering our homes, eating our cookies, drinking our milk and leaving us presents based upon a subjective evaluation of our naughty or niceness. It's the perfect, most wonderful time of the year for Santa's breaking and entering. But when Santa Claus is coming to town, you know who else is? Burglars, too. Burglars. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Burglary rates rise precisely 18% during the holiday season. The holiday season is open season for crime. It's the most wonderful time of the year for Santa and his breaking and entering, for burglars and their breaking and entering, but most importantly, it's the most wonderful time for Jesus, for his breaking and entering, for his advent. Well, what is Advent? I mean, we always hear this word tossed around in Christian circles. Advent simply comes from the Latin word adventus, meaning coming or visit, or as I like to say, breaking and entering, because that's really what it was. Well, it begins four Sundays before Christmas, and it ends on Christmas Eve. You know all those Hallmark movies? Christmas Eve is like the pinnacle. It's the climax of everything, and I just vomit in my mouth every time it comes to that scene. Literally, we were, uh, we were watching some Hallmark movie in Ohio over Thanksgiving, and I, I laid behind the couch and read a book while everyone else was, oh, the Christmas train, it's so beautiful, it's Christmas Day. I can't do that, I'm sorry. Advent is a season, amen, did I hear an amen? Put that hand down, bro, you're engaged, you're not even married yet, <laughs> be careful. No offense, if you like Advent, or I mean, if you like Hallmark movies, I don't know why, but I love you still. Advent is a season filled with expectation. It's a time when we remember the world waiting for a coming Savior and celebrate the way the world changed when Jesus was born. It's a season filled with the light and love of Jesus, the King born to save us. And I'm really excited because today we start a brand new sermon series called Born is the King. It's going to take us all the way through Advent. And we actually have a gift for each and every one of you. It's a downloadable devotion guide on our website. It's really snazzy and really high tech. All you have to do is go to www.journeythechurch.org, click download our study guide, and there you have it. You can put it on your smartphone, your iPad, Whatever, your flip phone probably won't work, but you can print out a hard copy as well. And this is what it says on the website. We're sharing a free download of our four-week devotional guide to walk you through Advent. Each week focuses on a specific aspect reflected in the birth of King Jesus, hope, peace, joy, and love. At the end of the week, you'll hear a Sunday message that relates to what you studied during the week. So it's pretty neat. Today we're going to talk about hope, so you're going to have to reread some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, but do check it out. It'll change your life. It'll change your family's life over this Advent season. 
So today we begin with hope. If you are able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we read from our memory verse for this new sermon series. We stand here to revere the word of God because God is good and he's full of love and he loves us and we love to hear how much he loves us and we do that through his word. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. So God, shine your light into our lives, we pray. Lord, maybe we come before you today and we are utterly hopeless. We are utterly drained. And Lord, maybe we come to you today and we're doing all right, we're doing pretty good. But Lord, in whatever situation we may find ourselves, you are the anchor for our soul. You are the greatest hope in our lives. So teach us today what that means. We love you and we need you more than ever. You are the hope of the world. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the pitch dark land, light has dawned. Have you ever tried walking in darkness? In darkness as dark as tar, black as caviar. It's rather dangerous and unsettling, especially if your darkened path is littered with razor-sharp furniture or rusty nails or god-awful Legos. I mean... It's rather dangerous and unsettling, too. The Hebrew word we see often translated as to walk is halach. And it's pretty cool because it can be used interchangeably, walk and live. It's kind of like our English word walk. It can also mean live. Because after all, we're walking in a winter wonderland. That's not just talking about what we do with our feet, right? No, that's talking about beautiful sights, being happy tonight. It's about bluebirds and new birds. It's about this strange snowman named Parson Brown. And it's, of course, taking time to conspire as you dream by the fire. It's so beautiful, so touching, you know. It's not just what we do with our feet. Walking is what we do with our lives. And the people... We're walking in darkness, as Isaiah puts it. The people that he's speaking to in his day and age were walking in darkness or living in darkness for whatever reason. Well, that reason was quite clearly the Neo-Assyrian Empire. What? What's the Neo-Assyrian Empire? Well, they conquered and controlled a vast territory of the ancient Near East in the 8th century BC. Take a look at the map, this huge expanse of land that they were able to conquer and control during Isaiah's day. Now, they were highly organized. They were administrative and viciously brutal. After conquering a nation, they would basically give that nation one of two options— You can become a vassal state, or you can become a province. As a vassal state of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, you were forced to pay a hefty tribute. So over-the-top taxes, huge percent. 
but you maintained your own self-governing and your own freedom of worship. However, if you were to rebel, basically not pay your taxes, withhold tribute from Assyria, you would quickly and violently become a province. Basically, your kingship would be disbanded. The king, his family, the governing officials, they would literally be disbanded, torn limb from limb, their heads severed, placed on the city gates. While they were alive, they might have their skin flayed from their bodies. Their bodies would then be impaled on stakes. It was brutal. But the skilled workers would then be deported. All the dangerous people, you know, the rage against the machiners, the pastors, the social activists, and the skilled workers, too, would be deported. And then new people would be imported. And what this would do, it would intermix within the common people, the original people, and they would essentially wipe your distinct cultural heritage right off the map and straight out of the books of history. And then Assyria would bring in their own authorities, their own government officials, and their own soldiers, So when we hear that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, we cannot take that darkness lightly. They were heavily, brutally oppressed. And to make matters worse, they were being led by a boneheaded king, King Ahaz, who had a track record of distrust and disobedience when it came to God. So to make matters worse, to make matters gloomier, if that was even possible, Ahaz was leading them astray. And it's smack dab right in the face of this faithlessness and this oppression and this hardship that Isaiah speaks these words. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, well, the Hebrew is salmavet. It's the same word that's used to describe that famous valley of Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. So we could actually translate this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the shadow of death or the land where death is right at hand, where death is right next door. Light has dawned, and what great hope that brings to our lives. There's a new regime, a new order of things in the light of this new dawning day. In the light of this new dawning day, the shadows are chased away. The shades are pulled back, and the darkness flees. Verses three through four continue. You have made the nation great. The nation that was in utter darkness has been made great. You have increased its joy, the joy that was once overcast and shrouded. It's you, God, you have given joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. When we were in Ohio for Thanksgiving, uh, we had like five pies, and I'm not exaggerating, five pies. There were nine of us, and we had five pies. Four of those individuals were under the age of eight. And so you do the math, that basically means like one pie per person. It was incredible. I like pumpkin pie, if anyone was wondering. I'll eat it all year long. 
But I also tried apple pie. It was pretty good too. But that's the feeling. That's the emotion that we see here, the joy of the harvest. And that's always a great experience, Thanksgiving, right? When everyone's enjoying the time together, eating wonderful food, and then someone starts talking about politics, right? But don't worry about that part or the religion part or all this controversial, divisive conversations that may happen at the, the dinner table. It didn't happen in ours, but imagine the moment when everyone just stuffs the food right into the mouth and everyone is so silent. That's kind of, I think, what they're talking about here with the joy at the harvest. As those who divide plunder rejoice. Now, the only people who are gonna be dividing plunder are the victorious ones. And that's exactly who these people are. Verse four says, as on the day of Midian, that's talking about the OG 300, the original gangster 300. I'm not talking about Leonidas and Sparta and that terrible movie like 10 years ago. You know what I'm talking about, right? Men do at least, I don't know. But we're talking about the OG 300, the original gangsters Gideon and Israel. They, they came long before Leonidas, long before Sparta, and they were up against an incredible enemy, the, the army of Midian, and they were whittled down to 300 people. It was actually God's doing. He's like, yeah, get rid of all these extra troops. If I was Gideon, I'd been like, what are you talking about, extra troops? Now we only have 300 troops, and we're going up against the whole Midianite army? Sounds smart. But check out the story in Judges 7 and 8. And just see how God provides miraculously and victoriously for these people. Isaiah is reflecting on that. Verse 4, as on the day of Midian, as on that day of the OG 300, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor. They were weighed down like oxen, poked and prodded beaten like bovine, but God, you have shattered the rod. You have shattered the staff. You have shattered the oppression, God. And that's what God does. He destroyed Midian. He's going to destroy Assyria, and he's gonna destroy all the enemies that come in his path until they are all a footstool for his feet. Because that's what God does with our greatest enemies, with our greatest trials. He puts his foot right on their neck and says, you are conquered. That's what hope does. That's what hope speaks into our lives. I like that. Verse five continues with that because we're just getting started. We've got darkness turned into daylight. We've got people rejoicing. We've got thanksgiving coming. Verse five says, because every boot of the thundering warriors, indeed every boot that marches and shakes the earth with violence and every garment rolled in blood or dragged in blood or, or soaked with blood will be burned, fuel for the fire it will be piled in heaps to burn for days and days. And what this means is God is going to bring an end to all war. But how? Like, how is God possibly going to achieve this? What's his master plan of making this come about? Verse 6a says, a child. Really? A child. You didn't have, like, a better plan? A child is born to us, 
A son is given to us and authority will be on his shoulders. Our 24-week ear of corn, that's what he's at right now, has about 110 more days to cook in the oven before he's ripe for the picking. 110 more days. Yeah, you can clap. That's my... And I can't help but identify with what Isaiah is saying here. Like I read this and it says, a child is born to us, the son is given to us. And I put, I put my own situation in there that a child is soon to be born to us, to me and to, to Tara. She's gonna do all the work. I'm, I don't have to do anything, I guess. Just tell me when it's done. I'll be there. That's not probably how it's gonna go. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> a child is soon to be born to us, so pray for us, please. A son is soon to be given to us, so definitely pray and fast and do whatever you do for us. But this whole part right here, an authority will be on his shoulders. Oh, man. The, the word in Hebrew is mishra, and that's like authority, government, dominion, rule. That's a lot to ask of our 24-week ear of corn. And I'm glad that, that this isn't referring to our soon-to-be baby. I, I just don't think that this is what he's cut out to do, right? But this is uh, quite a task here. Who is this baby? Who is this baby? Well, they've already named him here in the text. It says in the second half of, of verse six, he will be named, as the Hebrew text goes, Pele Voash El Gibor Kivad Sar Shalom. That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful in Hebrew. It's a mouthful even in English. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, that would be really awkward if this was like his first, middle, and last name. That's not what this is. This is a title of designation for this baby. So let's take a look at each one of these aspects of his title. We've got wonderful counselor. That refers to his integrity in the political sphere. He does what is right. He lets his yes be yes and his no be no. He does what's right even when no one is looking. Yeah, that's... That's something that we should all achieve for, right? The second title, Mighty God, stresses his power. It stresses his ability. Eternal Father signifies his care for the people, and Prince of Peace shows his ability to bring lasting peace to the nation. So who is this baby? Who is this baby, uh, or I think for the Advent breaking and entering season, we should probably say, what child is this? But before you say Jesus, before you say Jesus, did Isaiah necessarily have Jesus in mind over 700 years before his birth? Or was he referring to someone 700 years or so closer in proximity? Because after all, every time we read a biblical text, we have to imagine what was the original context. Who is the author or authors? Who might they be writing to? So Isaiah's day is dominated by the Neo-Assyrian Empire, so maybe this word of hope refers to a future king who will usher in an age of peace, justice, and righteousness, maybe like King Hezekiah. I mean, 
He, he kind of checks all the boxes, wonderful counselor, mighty God, check, eternal father, check, and prince of peace, check. Hezekiah is a, a good guess, but before we say it's not Jesus, Hezekiah does seem to meet all the requirements with flying colors, but even after Hezekiah's glorious reign, there's something that just feels left undone. Something still yet to be fulfilled. Yeah, there was peace, there was justice, there was righteousness, but King Hezekiah died. And with him, that peace and justice and righteousness. Because the next king who came after him, Manasseh, pretty much turned back all of those religious reforms that Hezekiah had brought about. And then Manasseh finds himself offering his newborn baby up on an altar to a pagan foreign god, sacrificing this child to Molech. That wasn't really long-lasting peace that we were hoping for. But what if it is some way both and? Like, what child is this? Maybe it's the both and baby. Is the baby of Isaiah 9 somehow both and Hezekiah? And then having read the New Testament, we see Jesus fulfill it in its fullness. Hezekiah sure meets all the requirements. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, at least for a little while, but Jesus fulfills it forever with lasting hope. And I think that's why we are quick to say, yeah, this is Jesus in Isaiah chapter nine, because this is what it says in verse seven. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. God's intense devotion and love for his people will make certain that his promises are fulfilled, always, always fulfilled. When I was in college, I worked at a summer camp and it was the first day of summer camp and there was this really cute second or third grade girl who showed up for her very first day of camp. And she was standing there with her, her beautiful dark chocolate skin and, and a smile that just looked like a beaming necklace of pearls. Her hands were tightly clasped around the pink straps of her Dora the Explorer backpack. And her father was there and he was signing her in. And he looked up from the pad and he set the pen down and he said, this is precious. I thought, what? What are you talking about? This is precious. Just summer camp. I don't know what you're talking about, bro. It's, I, of all the words that I could have picked to describe what this moment or summer camp is like, precious would definitely not be on the list, but I, I guess you could say that this was precious. But then I realized that he was here introducing me to his daughter, that her name is precious. Oh, her name is precious. Oh, okay. Well, 
I'm going to invite you into my mind for just a one quick scary second. Uh, the staff and the elders and the leadership of the church probably know that I am like the most cynical and skeptical one on staff. And uh, I heard an amen from J-Rod. He knows it. And uh, I'll have to tell you, my very first thought as he told me, yeah, this, this is precious. When I learned that her name was Precious, the first thought that came in my mind was, yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> now, of course, I did not say that out loud. I know social interaction a little bit better than to do something like that. But over the summer, over the days and weeks, Precious fulfilled her name. She was, in fact, Precious. This beautiful girl with dark chocolate skin and a pearly necklace for a smile. Her character was precious. And you know what the precious truth that I hold on to? The precious truth that I hope in is that Jesus will fulfill his name. Jesus will fulfill his name. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. From our snazzy devotional guide, week one hope. I don't know about you, but I've never been good at waiting. I've never been good at not knowing what's ahead. Looking forward to an unknown future with hope and excitement just doesn't come natural to me. I doubt it does to most. That's exactly what the people were facing before the birth of Christ. They'd been through so much, the good, the bad, and the unimaginably terrible over the years, floods and famine, war and wandering, slavery and suffering. These people endured it all, but always with the ever-present hope of a Savior promised to come. They'd long been shrouded in darkness, waiting for a light to come. But the darker the cloud, the brighter the sun that eventually shines through. And for them, the light to come was King Jesus. Though they waited in darkness, they did not wait without the hope of a Savior who was promised to come and shine eternal light on their lives. Waiting on God doesn't exactly look the same for us as it did for them. We have the privilege of knowing how their story ends. The Savior they hoped for did come, and not just for them, but for the whole entire world, for us. The waiting is still daunting, but we can wait with a fresh hope because we know the King has come. I believe... I believe that Jesus Christ is breaking and entering into our hearts and lives this Advent season. I believe that wholeheartedly, that he is breaking and entering, that he has come to clean house and to set things straight. Because man, we have gone astray. We might be the people walking in darkness, but we have a great light. And that great light we need to fix our eyes on, our thoughts on, our minds on, our entire lives on this. 
I'll tell you what, we hope in so many different things, people, places, opportunities, dreams. We, we put our hope in all of these things that will always fail us. I'll tell you what, I have no hope, no hope that will ever be fulfilled with certainty except the hope of Jesus Christ. And that hope is what we are to anchor our lives upon, to allow him to break in, fill us with his hope. You know, today as we celebrate communion, I want us to come to the table with hope. There's a lot of emotions that we bring to the table, maybe guilt, maybe fear, maybe anxiety, maybe frustration, hatred of ourselves, but today come to the table with hope because Jesus has created that hope and we celebrate that, that body that was broken, the blood that was shed to give us complete hope, that he is the only hope of the world. This is not a self-help sermon. I'm just telling you there's only one option and that option is to hope in Jesus Christ. And that's what we do today because we remember that he died for us. God's one and only son came to save us. And so let's celebrate that today. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you that you are the hope of the world. And Lord, as we celebrate communion today, we ask that your Holy Spirit fills this place you would fill this place with goodness and truth and mercy. You would speak your words to us. Lord, as we also have the prayer team up here, Lord, I pray that we would come and drop our burdens there, that we can find relief because we're interacting with you and interacting with people who love us. Lord, we thank you for your blood. I pray that that people today, if they want to experience that hope for the very first time, Lord, that they would pray, Jesus, come into my life. Break and enter into me. Because I believe that you died on the cross for my sin, but you rose again, defeating death, bringing hope and truth. Come into my life, and I want to follow you all the days all the days that you give me. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.